Today on the podcast, I'd like to introduce Michael Bohenik. Bohenik is a senior counsel to the Children's Rights Division of Human Rights Watch, focusing on juvenile justice and refugee and migrant children. So today we're going to be discussing a little bit of his research and then focusing in on forced sterilizations, public versus private detention centers, and just overall advice for college students. So welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. So jumping right in and talking about your research findings, specifically on criminal and juvenile justice systems and prison condition, what aspects of this specific research stand out to you? Well, so it's interesting to think about work that I've done and that colleagues have done in different parts of the world, in the U.S. and elsewhere. And so I've been in a lot of juvenile detention centers and I've been in a lot of prisons that hold kids as well as adults, even though that's prohibited by international standards. And what I think is really, you know, after I've seen a few of these, they begin to all look very similar um, in, with two, in two broad ways. One is that a lot of countries in the world just can't afford or won't afford, won't, won't put the money to provide adequate um, humane services the basics for for kids who are in detention. So that's true for for many parts of the world. In the United States, the the other thing that I notice is not the lack of money so much, although of course every locality could use more money. It's more that there are deliberate choices about what to subject kids to or what to subject adults to that that is intentionally cruel. And so those real, um, disparities on the one hand, real neglect in much of the world and, and in the US uh, intentional cruelty are, are some of the most obvious things that I'm struck by when I'm in these places. What works in terms of impact, it always, it always um, interests me that it's often small things that really captivate people. When I was in Baltimore and talking to people in the city of Baltimore, about the conditions their their children were in in the the Baltimore City Jail, they were most struck by the idea that there were rats running over kids' legs at night when they slept. Um, Similarly, in Los Angeles and in in Brazil, people really reacted to the idea that kids weren't getting enough to eat. Those were, it's great that that there was an ability to make a connection with with people, with children, even though they had committed crimes in this case or had been convicted of crimes. Um, And we were able to resolve those specific issues in relatively short order, more food, better better conditions of of detention. But the larger, the more systemic issues, why the kids were there in the first place, that's always been the really difficult question that that I think we, we keep grappling with. So it's a bit unanswered, I think, unfortunately. Have you noticed any patterns with each of these systems? Well, one pattern is that girls are always left out. Um, there's, there are many fewer girls in juvenile detention than there are boys. Um, this is particularly true in, in most of the world. I think in the US, the, the, the number of girls is slightly higher than the global average. Um, but because there are so few girls in a lot of countries, for example, in Latin America, there might be one juvenile detention center for girls in the entire state or in the entire country. Um, in one of the largest states in Brazil, 
the, the only, in, in the Amazon, the only juvenile detention center for girls is in the capital. And so it means that family have to travel for days by boat in order to reach um, their daughters to, 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 to do a monthly visit. It's a really significant um, barrier to keeping in contact with the community, which is so crucial when you're aiming for rehabilitation and reentry into society. Another, you know, I think this is probably less true in the U.S. I hope it's less true in the U.S. than, than elsewhere, is the tendency to um, afford girls really stereotyped kinds of activities, crafts, uh, arts, things that they can sit and do quietly, that they're expected to sit and do quietly, as opposed to giving them large muscle activity. So, you know, boys get to play soccer, girls have to sew. And, you know, obviously the needs of teenagers of any gender requires them to have adequate exercise as well as other kinds of recreation. So those are the, among the patterns that, I, that, I've, that I've been seeing around the world. Um, and I guess the final one, which is a little discouraging, is a real tendency, but it's really pronounced particularly in the most well-off countries that I've been to, some of the most well-off countries that I've been to. I'm thinking of the United States, I'm thinking of Australia, where the tendency is really to treat children who have committed crimes as something other than, even other than human. There's a lot that goes into that that I think we're gonna talk about in, in, in other contexts, but the, the real racial and ethnic disparities in these countries, as well as many others, I think is, is a big part of this tendency really to, um, really to dismiss the needs of people who are, who are children, who are, who are growing up, who are capable of change, who need care and protection, and who, um, who really shouldn't be, you know, at any age shouldn't be in the kinds of conditions that I've been seeing. And yet there's a, a tendency really to dehumanize in response. Well, so what I've been looking at over the last, I guess, five years in particular are the, the experiences of, of children who are seeking safety, they're seeking asylum, or have moved, um, uh, maybe they don't know that this is a possibility, but they're, but they're fleeing some significant harm in their home countries, um, and have moved to countries that are uh, relatively well off. So I've looked at immigration policies in Australia as a destination country in several European countries in Mexico and in the United States. And so in each of these trajectories, I guess, of, of, of kids traveling on their own, trying to find a place where they can, where they can, um, where they can really grow up and be safe, I think we're seeing, I'm seeing again and again, a series of political responses that ignore the reality that we're talking about children that systematically diminish their need for protection and often speak in really harsh terms about the need for deterrence measures, about stopping the boats in the case of Australia, about uh, sending uh, children, oh, you know, sending children back to uh, countries like Central America, like Central American countries that are incredibly dangerous for them. We have the example of family separation in the U.S. Um, more recently, the use of, of, of uh, 
really spurious public health rationale to expel hundreds of thousands of people, including children, many tens of thousands of children, without any consideration of their needs for protection, or in the case of children, their age, or any other factors that go to their go to vulnerabilities, things like uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, things like existing trauma, um, uh, medical conditions, pregnancy, all of these things that you would think that you would hope would be considered in a fair and humane immigration system, in the at least in the context of of COVID-related summer expulsions, just just don't even enter into the calculation. Have you noticed that specifically with your research, these marginalized groups, such as those who are gay or bisexual or transgender, that some of their rights aren't as addressed? I think we should distinguish between when they finally get in front of a judge and can talk about their asylum claim. Then I think um, in the United States, for example, in, in other countries, there are possibilities for raising uh, uh, claims of persecution based on sexual orientation or, or based on gender identity, although it's very, very difficult. And a lot of times, um, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of some really bad decisions in the United Kingdom and, and some other countries where people are asked to prove that they're gay um, or, or the inspector, the examiner is coming with what appears to be a very stereotypical, outright offensive checklist of what it might mean to be gay. And so, you know, is asking people who are quite religious why they don't, why they aren't going to clubs and, and why they dress in particular ways, really failing to understand that people are coming with a, with a, a combination of identities and that, uh, and that regardless of what that, that individual examiner may think he or she knows about about uh, what it means to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer in general, that, that, that may not have any bearing on the individual applicant's own circumstances. And so an unwillingness to see them as they are. So that was my, my preface by saying that, like in principle at least, the legal system for asylum is supposed to be able to account for this. What I think is more, much more challenging for, for many people that I've spoken are their experiences on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, while in transit and while awaiting uh, the possibility of, of, of presenting an asylum claim. So you, you know, many of you know, for example, that in the United States, many asylum seekers have been forced to wait in Mexico for what's now a period of well over a year um, and even before the pandemic was many, many months before they would get an asylum hearing in front of an immigration judge and have been forced to return to Mexico after each of these hearings until the, until the case is completed. During that time, they're spending their days in shelters or in accommodation they found through the generosity of others, um, really often quite crowded spaces and in many times spaces that are not very, that, are, that can be very hostile toward, um, toward people who are queer and who express that in a way that's recognizable. So, you know, I've talked to teenagers who feel that they need to go, effectively go back into the closet, even though they're out to their families because of the environment they're in in their shelter while they're waiting for 
while they're waiting for adjudication, that they certainly don't feel um, safe on the streets um, in, in border towns in Mexico. That in particular for people who are transgender, the, the, the risks of quite serious violence, uh, of, 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 of physical violence, of, uh, including of, of abduction, sexual assault, death in the most extreme circumstances, this is never far from people's minds because of cases they, of, of people they know to whom this has happened. So these kinds of experiences can be, um, as you can imagine, incredibly difficult to live through and add to what is already uh, an underlying sort of level of trauma that people are facing and uncertainty that really, I think, erodes people's sense of security and leaves them feeling that maybe there's no, no hope. So now going into kind of our main discussion, we're gonna be going into forced sterilizations. And so in the media last fall, there was a whistleblower who came out and talked about in specifically a private detention center um, that there are forced sterilizations happening. And oftentimes the people, the women who were getting forced sterilizations didn't necessarily understand what was going on or weren't fully informed. And so can you touch about kind of like your research into forced sterilizations specifically in the US? Yeah, I guess the first thing to say is that I hope uh, that these were relatively isolated incidents. I, I hope, I mean, we know of these specific cases that came out of Georgia and, um, and, and some pretty powerful testimonies by the whistleblowers and by women themselves about what, what happened and, and what didn't happen that should have, should have happened. I mean, obviously, in any kind of medical care setting, people should have full information and should be able to consent in advance to anything that any kind of, of, of treatment that's provided to them, um, certainly something that would be irreversible, right? That, that would be a baseline consideration. I think, unfortunately, the, the approach that many detention facilities take, including for immigration, is that people who are detained by definition aren't that, 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 that medical staff and that the authorities don't need to seek consent, that somehow the fact of detention has overridden consent. And as a legal principle, this is, this is, this is both uh, sort of like an obnoxious return to what seems like a 19th century age of legal formalism. You know, like it makes sense as a thought exercise if you don't consider any human elements to it, that's the only way that it's logical. Um, but as a more generally, you know, there, there's there's no reason to, particularly in, in an immigration setting, but but in any other context, you know, when you're when you are providing what is uh, a medical service or medical treatment or a medical procedure, it should follow accepted standards of care, including the ethical, ethical standards. So there, there's no reason to treat people in detention differently from those who are out of detention when it comes to giving them information, um, asking for their, for their consent and making, taking steps to make sure that consent is, is knowing and voluntary. There are a lot of factors I think that are important in, in the context of what happened in Georgia 
and what we see in other medical contexts when it comes to the immigration detention setting. Um, one is that, you know, obviously many people are not going to speak English to the level necessary to be able to understand complicated uh, medical information. And so they need the assistance of, of an interpreter in the language they speak best. That language might be Spanish. It often is in the case of, of people who have come from Central America or, or from Mexico, but it may not be Spanish. It, it, many, many uh, people who are coming from, from Mexico, from Guatemala in particular, um, are coming from indigenous communities and speak indigenous languages to a much greater degree of fluency than they do Spanish. So it wouldn't even be sufficient to give them uh, some basic information in Spanish. It would have to be in, in the language they speak, they speak that they are most comfortable in. That is not always easy. There may not be uh, speakers of Mam or Quiche or, 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 or the, the language that's, that's required immediately at hand. But of course, we're talking here about procedures that didn't need to be done in the first place and certainly don't have any time frame to them. So, you know, there, there's, there's, we're not talking about an emergency setting where different ethical principles come into play. These are, these are things that are effectively uh, done or not done um, I, you know, in, 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 in the best practice with the full consent of the person who is, who is affected by them. Um, I think another element is, is often a combination of factors such as age and uh, a deference to authority, including to medical authority, that is likely greater than would be the case among um, the average patient in the United States. Um, I, I think that bearing all of those factors in mind uh, is crucial to make sure that any kind of consent to any medical procedure is, 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 is voluntary, is truly voluntary. And I think that I can, I, can, I can think of four or five teenage girls that I've spoken with who haven't told me about forced sterilization, but who have described um, doctors' examinations that they clearly were uncomfortable with, that they clearly felt were intrusive, that they clearly didn't understand and would not have consented to, but for the fact that they felt that, that they had to, because they were young, because they were indigenous, because they were migrant women, and because they were in detention. So I think the medical profession, including those who work with prisons, and especially those who work with private prisons, have an even greater obligation to ensure that what their practices uh, are doing is meeting the highest ethical standards. Now, you know, of course, the realities are that it's difficult, it's difficult enough for women and girls in these kinds of positions to get the help of lawyers to assist with their asylum claims, which is their, 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 their probably their foremost consideration, like an ability to stay somewhere safely and permanently instead of having to return to a, to a place where they face persecution. It's much, much harder, obviously, to get any kind of legal assistance for, um, for any other legal matter. So, so it's really difficult to see how in practice anything but the most extreme cases, you know, something that we saw in Georgia, for example, where a whistleblower comes, comes forward 
where the ACLU gets involved, that kind of thing is the exception rather than, than the rule, unfortunately. And, you know, and I think, again, you know, this isn't surprising to anybody who, who knows a prison setting or can think about a prison setting by its nature, it's closed. It's, it's very, very difficult to, to know what's going on inside and to know what's going on in the transfers from prison to hospitals, to other kinds of places of detention. And so I'm afraid that what we know is really kind of the tip of the iceberg and that there's much, much more, many other kinds of abuses that simply go unaddressed because nobody knows they're happening. Yeah, I mean, this, 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 um, the compound effect of discrimination because of the intersection of race and gender and because of the intersection of, of other aspects of identity as well, thinking about uh, indigenous status, about language, about migration status, I think all of these combine in a way that makes the, the accumulated effect of the discrimination much more than some of, the, some of its parts. I mean, I think that's just, that, that almost goes without saying. Um, what's deeply disturbing about seeing how this plays out when it comes to, to sexual and reproductive rights and sexual and reproductive health is the, the combination of seemingly contradictory approaches, uh, abuses, right? On the one hand, we've got things like forced sterilization. And on the other hand, um, what I've seen certainly more than once, and I think we've, we've established in, in litigation as well, uh, a real tendency to deny um, access to abortion services for pregnant girls, including when pregnancy is the result of rape. But in any event, the, the pertinent thing here would be when the pregnancy is, is, is unwanted, right? When, when they don't feel for whatever reason that they, that they can or, or have, the, have the wherewithal or the, yeah, to, to, carry, to carry to term. I was in a, it's a, it's a shelter, but it's, a, it's called a shelter for immigrant children who are unaccompanied. Uh, shelter is a bit of a euphemism, more than a bit of a euphemism because it's essentially a warehouse. So hundreds and hundreds of children were in this particular shelter. And when I went through the girls sections, there were posters in the, in the, the living areas in the dormitories that advised them that if they thought they were pregnant, they could call a specific number. And on further investigation, it turned out to be a religious institution Nothing wrong with that, if that's one of several options. But on further investigation, of course, this religious institution was, had, had specific, was channeling um, girls who called specific kinds of advice, specifically carry, the, carry, the, carry to term, give birth, give up for adoption, as opposed to offering the full range of services, including, including information about abortion. Um, I, it's difficult for me to believe that this would have been possible. I mean, I'm sure it, I'm sure somebody will, will point out a case where unfortunately it is, but it's difficult, it, I'm sure that it is all the more possible because of the intersection of, of, of gender, of race, but also migration status, of the fact that, that girls were detained, of their age, uh, and, and the fact that in many cases, girls were indigenous 
or from uh, other backgrounds that were that had, had already faced discrimination in their home countries. I mean, that's in some sense a bit of a speculation on my part, but I think it's one additional, at least one data point that suggests that there's a lot that goes on um, in settings like these where I the combination of backgrounds, it's difficult to disassociate sort of um, the backgrounds, the characteristics of the individuals who are affected, of these girls, um, when and, and contrast it to the way that health officials, the way that um, that that child service, child protection officials, if this is a, a youth shelter, the way that that authorities in another context where they're largely dealing with white middle class. Uh, girls from, you know, girls and their families, I don't think they'd be able to get away with this kind of thing, is I guess what I'm saying. But I think the problem is so big, in fact, that to my mind, and this is speaking personally rather than on behalf of Human Rights Watch, I think that it is difficult not to conclude that the use of private detention facilities is so open to abuse that it shouldn't ever happen that the state, there are some things that the state should really have a monopoly over. The state has a monopoly over the use of force uh, with, with appropriate constraints. The state should also have a monopoly over what is really uh, the use of force to, to, to lock somebody up, to detain somebody. And it shouldn't outsource that to whatever company happens to set up and, and open for business um, open for the business of warehousing human beings. That's both, you know, there's something morally repugnant about that, but also we've seen repeatedly an unwillingness on the part of far, far too many private actors to observe basic standards of decency that I think we should just draw a firm line under and say, no, let's not have these, let's not have this, this kind of setup. And lastly, we're gonna go into our section just on overall advice and kind of how as we as college students get involved. There are lots of ways um, very locally, um, potentially remotely, and certainly with uh, the possibility of some travel to get involved um, at whatever level makes sense for a person's individual circumstances. Um, there are you know, thinking only, for example, of the refugee migrant context, there are uh, refugee resettlement agencies around the country and around and in other countries around the world. And it's possible in your own community to do work that would be uh, assisting with service delivery, assisting with, with uh, the delivery of food or linking people up with the services they're, they're, they need, providing a mentorship um, opportunities, um, doing things like tutoring, though all of these kinds of things are incredibly helpful, involve a, a really important personal connection, and are give give people a sense of one piece of the larger picture. So you know, I don't think anybody needs to look at it as a as a resume building exercise. And I would hope that if somebody did, they wouldn't. They just wouldn't do it, right? They'd find something else to do but rather as a real opportunity to see 
in a really up close way what the needs are of, of people in 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 this kind of these kinds of circumstances and what the really good groups are doing to try to meet those needs so that's that's one set of, uh, of ideas i think for those who are able to um, operate through uh, a university umbrella to have sort of university sponsored discussion groups clubs or other kinds of groups I think there's the additional possibility of drawing on all the resources of the university of, of the academic side of the research side as well as the alumni connections that every university has and so I wouldn't you know, I, I wouldn't be shy about exploiting those 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 possibilities. There's a lot of things that that can be done that really great groups exist um, specifically to do, and often welcome students for uh, a defined period of time to be able to assist them with that. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at. HRW UCSB for updates.